from Mark, chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark, the shortest, most succinct of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Based on uh, the memory of Peter, the disciple, um, the one that was called the Rock, it's really a series of anecdotes, a series of stories about what uh, Peter saw Mark doing. And we've seen Jesus. He begins his ministry by being baptized and being tempted. He teaches with authority in the temples, sharks the leadership of Israel. He begins to create his church. He gathers his 12 disciples and he is followed by crowds. And then he begins to teach. We've seen him teach with parables, uh, little nuggets, little stories planted like seeds that grow as you consider them. And now... He's in a new phase. He taught about the kingdom of God in a series of parables, a light on the stand, a seed sown in the human heart. But last time on a previous Sunday, we saw him begin to change. Instead of teaching crowds, he becomes a sort of living parable, creating a story. He takes his disciples, fishermen, out into the middle of the lake, and when a huge storm comes up, he quietens it with a word. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died, and it was completely calm. He shows that as king, 
he is not a power confronting other powers in the world. Rather, he is the source of power. He is the reason that there is anything at all with any power. He doesn't fight the storm, he just switches it off. He takes its power away. He is redefining the concept of king to his disciples. And now, another, I want to call it a set piece. I mean, it sounds a little staged when I say that, but Jesus is deliberately creating these stories for his disciples. Look at verse 1. They went across the lakes to the region of the Gerasenes. So this is Jesus taking the initiative. He's taking them across the Sea of Galilee, out of Israel. That's a significant point in this story. He is no longer in the land of Israel. He takes them to the land of the Gentiles. It's a deliberate act. Jesus is the one initiating everything. Jesus is the one demonstrating to this core audience, his disciples, something new about who he is. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Jesus has taken his disciples out of Israel, among the Gentiles, who were considered an unclean, unholy people, that is, without God. And he takes them to a man who lives in the tombs, in the graveyards, an unclean place. And he's filled with an unclean spirit. This is a foreshadowing. Jesus is showing that his authority extends beyond Israel. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the world. His kingdom claims everybody and everything. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So here you have a completely alienated man. Alienated from his society, his culture, his people. He lives by himself, out amongst the dead, amongst the tombs. Alienated from himself. He's not of a right mind, and he cuts himself, defacing the image of God. We're all made in God's image. This is a man who is alienated and in full rebellion against himself and against everything. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Falling on your knees before the king, acknowledging the king's authority, changes everything for the man and for the spirits that possess him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Notice there's an ambivalence here. Who is speaking? The man or these spirits within him? Who is the real person here? And notice the attempt to use God's name against Jesus. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
In God's name, don't torture me. It is an attempt to use God's authority, God's name, against Jesus, the Son of God. An attempt at power, an attempt at control. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Legion is the name given to the largest unit in the Roman military, up to 6,000 men. So legion means a lot of soldiers. It means an army. And notice, as we, as we go on, this legion will go into 2,000 pigs. So whatever the numbers, we're talking about many. We're talking about an army. This is a confrontation. This is a struggle. This is God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom as king, meeting the kingdom of darkness, the armies of darkness. And notice it is a confrontation. With the storm, Jesus just switched it off. Quiet, be calm, and all the energy is sucked out of the storm. It's switched off. This, though, is a confrontation. Impure spirits, demons, that which is unclean and unholy has no place in God's kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom. It will be confronted, they will be confronted, they are being confronted, and they are being driven out. And also notice, this is a confrontation with a spiritual reality with demonic activity. This is not some kind of psychological problem that the man has. This is not some kind of illness. This is a real confrontation. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Pigs, according to Judaism in Israel, were considered unclean. There would be no pigs in Israel. This is another sign that we're outside of Israel. We're in the world beyond uh, the Jewish people. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, in our sentimental age, the killing of 2,000 pigs is shocking, even grotesque, and seems to demand an explanation. You'll notice there is no explanation here. Jesus and uh, the writer of Mark don't seem much interested. No need for explanation. Perhaps the whole point is the demons are destroying themselves so that they can't bother anybody else, so that they can no longer be part of the kingdom. But what are those pigs? What is their significance? Well, nobody, nobody really knows. All the commentators I read disagreed. But they do agree on some things. The pigs were unclean. They would have been considered outside the kingdom anyway. There's a demonstration here of the full authority of Jesus. The demons do what he says. They have to ask his permission. He's in full control of what occurs. As I said, what is happening in the man is real. 
It's a spiritual reality. It is not some kind of psychological condition. It has an effect outside him. And this must have been an incredible sight. 2,000 pigs charging into the water. And it shows that there is no place for evil in Jesus' kingdom. When they obey, they are destroyed. There is no place, there is no negotiation, there is no attempt to incorporate that which is fundamentally evil. So how should we think about this? It's a pretty shocking, remarkable story. Clearly, Jesus wants us to think about it. He set this up deliberately. He was the one that led the way out of Israel. He took the uh, disciples there. He seems to have been expecting to meet this man. He gets out to meet him as he comes running down. Jesus wants us to notice this story. He wants us to think about it and try to understand something about him as king and our relationship to him as king. Let me share with you an encounter that I had a few years ago, which has helped me think about the story. This church was uh, generous enough to send me off to sabbatical in South Africa uh, four years ago. And on my travels, I met a man called Peter from Belgium. We were in the Transvaal, which is north of South Africa, and we were staying in an African village. I shared a house with this man for a week, and he would tell me these astonishing stories. Turned out that in the 60s, Peter had been a sort of mystical hippie in, in India. And he was part of a community for about a decade. He lived in a community that surrounded a temple dedicated to Shiva. Uh, rather ominously, Shiva is called the destroyer. But you know, this was all good, clean, hippie fun. He had a blast. He loved it. That decade was one of his happiest, he said until one of his fellow mystics got jealous of him. Now, to aid their meditations, some of the Shiva priests and some of the devotees would drink this weak tea. It's made from a, a poisonous plant in the nightshade family. Very, very dangerous. It's the same plant that is used in Haiti by the voodoo priests in their zombie rituals. So it's a nasty, nasty plant. Peter, without his knowledge, was given a concentrated version of the tea. And he promptly went mad. So he was sent back to Belgium. For 17 years, he was in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, now, there a, lot, there a lot went on there. He told stories about it. But after much drama, a doctor tried a new cocktail of drugs, and he began to return to relative normality, 17 years. And so I asked him, what is it like to be mad? You know, you're sitting there drinking tea. It's an obvious question, right? And he said it was, there were voices in his head, six very distinct, strong personality, loud voices. And they would criticize him and challenge him and undermine him and go through all the elements of his life and ridicule him. And they were so loud, he couldn't think. He couldn't formulate thoughts. Uh, he was completely overwhelmed. They just continuously talked day and night until all he could do was lay in a fetal position trembling. 
spent years and years and years like that. Now, that's a terrible story. The drugs that he was given quieten the voices. Um, he was still a little eccentric, but he was helping uh, the young people in these African villages um, create T-shirts, tie-dyeing T-shirts, and create artifacts that he would take back to Belgium to sell in uh, non-for-profit stores. He had to go back every three months to replenish his medicine. And I asked him, I was sitting next to him, what about these voices? Oh, they're still there. He said, it's like I'm at a party and they are in the corner and I'm aware of them and if I give them my attention or the medicine runs low, they edge closer and their voices grow louder. Utterly terrifying. You know, we were sitting in the African sun and the chill of his story gripped me. So what's my point? I was sitting right next to this demon-possessed man. He called them demons, by the way. He said there were six of them. Um, there are no categories to think about this in my Western education. Stuff like this just, there's, there's no categories even to talk about it. And yet, this very sincere, vividly alive man in front of me is telling me this story. How could I think about it? And by the way, there was a fear also. Gosh, if that can happen to you, what about me? You're right next to me. They're in your head. I mean, it was quite shocking. And then I remembered who I was. I'm a Christian. There's a story that came to mind as I was listening to him. It's in Matthew. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Another terrible story. But it gives, I think, some important information, certainly information that my Western education had not given me. The drugs that Peter received allowed him to live. They quietened the voices in his mind, didn't remove them, which I think shows that it was an essentially spiritual condition, not a medical condition, but it did quiet them. And as I was listening to him, I, I was thinking, how many people in the West try to solve spiritual issues, issues that are essentially about spiritual matters and spiritual hungers with drugs, with therapy, either through a doctor or self-medicating through alcohol or opioids or increasingly marijuana, which is spreading. How many people just try to numb their minds so when they're not working, they fill themselves with TV or pornography or gambling, compulsive eating, a million other addictions which are spreading rampant through the West. But also, the fear that I had, as soon as I felt that fear, almost immediately, I remembered my baptism. As soon as he was talking about these voices in his head, 
I thought, that can't happen to me. Why? Because I am not spiritually empty. As a Christian, I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, there cannot be evil spirits, impure spirits, unholiness. In our baptism, we are spiritually claimed, spiritually renewed. There is no room for spirits. And not only that, the one who claims us has all the power that is. When there is a confrontation between the Holy Spirit, between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, we know who wins. It's not even a contest. And so my baptism in the middle of this story became a source of memory and of grace, quieted my fears, gave me actually an authority to sit there and be in relationship with this devil-possessed man. You remember how Jesus began his ministry? Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of, up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus started his ministry, started the kingdom of God, which he was ushering in, with the Holy Spirit. It defined him. It anointed him. It blessed him. Remember, immediately he went out in the desert was tempted by the devil. The Spirit defines the kingdom of God. Jesus is its king. And all who are subject to the king, all who are part of the kingdom, all who have been baptized by the Spirit belong to God alone. Your baptism, my baptism, has power because it is God's word. It is God's witness in this world. This one belongs to me, nobody else. This one carries my name. This one is traveling, moving, living according to my purpose and my agenda, subject to my kingdom, subject to my will. It's why we pray, our Father in heaven, thy will be done, not my will, because we are part of that kingdom. And that means, if you are part of the kingdom of God, if you are a baptized Christian, you can go out into the world to the darkest places of the world, among the tombs and the graveyard and the dead and the possessed and the alienated, into the most terrible situations completely without fear. Isaiah put it this way. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. 
for I am the Lord your God, your Savior. Final thought. Notice what initiated all this. The man kneeled in front of Jesus. That is, he acknowledged his authority as his king. Jesus became his Lord. And what did that do? Two things. It bound that which was impure in him, that which was unholy, and it set him free. Look how this story ends. As Jesus was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And then all the people were amazed. The man has been set free, kneeling before his king, his creator, allowed him to be free, to stand as a free man, to do anything he wants. And what does he choose? He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be close to his king. He wants to advance his kingdom. And in fact, that's what he ends up doing. That's where Jesus sends him. The first missionary, because he knelt before Jesus. Surely that's what Jesus is teaching us here. Remember, this is a story that he created. It's deliberately an attempt to teach his disciples and us about the nature of his kingdom. Implicit here is a promise that God's kingdom, through Jesus the King, is going to expand in the world beyond Israel, out into the Gentiles, ultimately out to the whole world. And Jesus will become king of that whole world. And every knee will bow. Whether in joy and acceptance or in terror as evil is driven out. Paul puts it this way. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the promise. And so every human being has a choice. Kneel in joy and worship. Kneel in terror and dread. Jesus' kingdom is advancing. The king has returned. His will is being done, and his kingdom will triumph. Nothing can stand against it, because he has all the power. Each of us, day by day, has a choice. Are we about the business of that kingdom, or are we going to listen to those other voices in our head, those other claims on our attention, those other ways of living, despite God, in rebellion against God. The kingdom is not just out there, it's right in the center of us. And every time you worship, every time you kneel, every time you acknowledge Christ, the kingdom within you grows and is strengthened. We become more Christ-like. We become more like Jesus' church. It's happening right now.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you didn't just come as a teacher or as a savior, but as a king, and that you inaugurated a new kingdom, a new way of being in the world, a new way of living. Lord, help us to live according to that reality. Help us to pray every day, every morning, thy will be done. Help us to be subject to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.